If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to the Horticulture Week podcast. I'm Rachel Forsyth, Senior Reporter at Hort Week. And on this week's podcast, I'm joined by Jack Potter, who is Ground Control's Biodiversity Manager. How are you, Jack? Hello, yes, very well, thank you. Um, I always find it really interesting to hear how people made their way into the industry, because I feel like everyone has kind of a slightly different story. So what's yours? How did you come upon the industry? So I sort of started off life um, on a hill farm in the Peak District and uh, used to used to do some some sort of labouring type work for my father um, and was immersed in the environment from the start, really. Uh, and that sort of piqued my interest in, in the natural world. Uh, and I wanted to break my way into the conservation sector, um, which was which was a difficult thing to do uh, when you when you're starting from the bottom. So so I sort of targeted the um, conservation organisations, which uh, sort of actually paid the least out of out of all of them because I thought you'd end up having less competition for higher responsibilities so I ended up working for the RSPB which at the time fit that criteria um as as, a, as an apprentice um or an intern they called it um my, my dad thought I was an absolute nutcase you know going to work for free when he was going to pay me <laughs> minimum wage um but I've never looked back um so yeah, so I sort of worked my way up through the RSPB and 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 found myself in in Natural England um, after sort of working as a as a warden uh, on the de-estuaries uh, up in Cheshire, um, and yeah, that that sort of introduced me to to biodiversity because in Natural England everyone seemed to want to have biodiversity sort of taglined on their name. They wanted to have done something for net gain for biodiversity, um, and and I wasn't an exception to that. Um, so I sort of pursued um, opportunities internally within Natural England to to sort of follow the biodiversity path um, as a sort of new and emerging area. 
Um, and I ended up working in the national team on the biodiversity metric 3.0, um, the sort of technical aspect of that and, and, and writing a lot of the guidance as well. Um, so now I work for, for ground control sort of in the private sector, um, eff- effectively implementing the, the tools and guidance and, and policy which I helped influence, which is quite a rewarding position to be in. Ah, so you're really seeing it from both sides of the coin, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I've I found it's, it's you know, it's invaluable to, to have had that that experience on the other side of the fence, um, especially when, you know, you have potentially clients who aren't particularly happy with with policies or, or, or tools that are available and how it affects them as a business. Um, and, and having that really deep understanding of, of the metric and the guidance and the policy and, and all the things that have come before that, to actually put put pressure on the right places or, or potentially interpret things differently um, to be slightly more evidence-based and, and, and fit the client that, that's, you know, requesting. Yeah, is there anything particular that you've learned about that metric since um, kind of, like you said, working on the ground, I suppose, at ground control on the other side of it? Yeah, I think I think the main thing is that ground control are, are a very diverse company and they, you know, their, their, their client base spans multiple sectors and and entering ground control as a as a biodiversity manager, I soon realised that actually the biodiversity metric and the guidance is very very tailored to the development sector, and there are a lot of things within the the, the metric and and the the guidance, which almost precludes an entire sector which is looking to do um, you know to, to to be called nature positive, um, or or to tick the biodiversity boxes on their um, ESG accreditation um, for, for, for B Corp or, or others. Um, so I think those those elements which are specific to, to development creeping into the metric, although the metric was specifically created for it, I think is slightly short-sighted. So I'm hoping, you know, between now and the next sort of five years to, to try and influence that um, and try and make it more fit for purpose for um, for, for ev- anyone and everyone that's wanting to account for biodiversity impacts. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. I'll look forward to seeing how that develops over the next years, potentially. Um, so how long have you been at Ground Control as biodiversity manager? And, and what exactly does your job entail? Obviously, hopefully um, influencing the metric, but anything else? So I've, I've recently started at Ground Control. I've only been in post for about three months. Um, and, and that's in, in response to, to Ground Control having a huge drive as part of their sort of core business model to really be pushing the biodiversity agenda. Um, I mean, I think they've they've seen some of their clients um, requesting to, to, to be doing more for biodiversity on their sites uh, and understanding that. Um, and, and Ground Control wanted someone who, who really understood the in- intricacies of, of, of metric as, a, as the sort of the main measuring tool um, and, and how we can sort of uh, focus that on our clients. So that's... Uh, so, so I've only been working there for, for, for about three months um, and, and sort of my, my day-to-day work involves, um, I guess, doing management plans, assessments, talking to clients about their drivers on, um, and, and some clients don't even know what their drivers are, to be honest. Um, you know, they, they would like to do some something good for the environment and give something back. Um, some of them don't even have land um, and, and trying to understand how they can uh, do something good for biodiversity in the environment uh, with all the different constraints that each client gives. It's, it's quite interesting. Yeah, and it's so positive to hear that it's coming from the clients as much as it's coming from ground control. 
because I'm quite interested in how as a grounds maintenance company or side of the business you balance that kind of clients desires managing infrastructure with kind of working for nature and working for biodiversity how do you balance both of those yeah and and it's an interesting conversation and, and it's interesting every time we have the conversation with each client because you know typically speaking grounds maintenance of of any given site will be you know mowing it more times a year than is good for biodiversity cutting hedgerows more times a year than is good for biodiversity um, and effectively for ground control the more times we have to visit a site the more money we get from from contracting so flipping that round and and you know maybe having a less intensive mowing regime um, and, and and less intensive cutting regime of hedgerows it sounds counterintuitive from from our perspective um, but this is the direction of, of travel this is the trend that, that clients are wanting to do um, and if you don't move with the times you'll end up being left behind um, so, you know, ground control are really, really forward thinking on this. Um, and, you know, in, ter- in terms of um, uh, income uh, generation for ourselves and, and, and mitigating for those losses, it actually doesn't, uh, you know, doesn't impact too much because it, it ends up balancing out because, um, you know, doing the assessments for, you know, what's currently there and what you could do in the future, um, but also the monitoring so people can measure and monitor and then report back to to quantify the impacts that the change has had um so yeah it's it's staying 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 at the at the front of the market is effectively our our main aim and is there a particular site or project that really stands out in your mind um as an example of of kind of working with a client to increase biodiversity yeah there's there's one that i've i've recently been been working on um with the uh, ministry of justice um with one of their sort of crown court sites which is um, you know, it's right next to a, an internationally important wildlife site um, and has quite a bit of green space on site as well. So trying to sort of figure out how they can quantify their biodiversity gain by changing their management regime of which ground control is is, is implementing. Um, is, it was, was quite an interesting, um, you know, project to, to undertake, but also they've they've got their um uh, sort of probation requirements uh, uh, um and how ha- and how that actually fits into the management plan you know are there elements of of increasing biodiversity um which are locally relevant and and in this instance the the international site next door was was um you know really important for uh, deadwood invertebrates um so and they've got woodland on site so trying to incorporate as much deadwood and and also bare ground was the other thing so incorporating dead wood in terms of habitat piles, dead standing wood, um, and also creating intentional bare ground patches, which could be colonised by invertebrates. Um, it's an easy win. You know, they will just simply overspill from the site next door into that area. Um, and, you know, there are activities that can be taken for probation, um, which is a big win. do you teach your staff um to kind of work within these remits as well you know what what does their work look like day to day so we're 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 slowly uh, um and and progressively trying to uh, increase the knowledge of of all staff within ground uh, ground control um right from the top all the way you know down to down to the people who are um you know cutting cutting the grass um and that that involves 
training events, um, which, you know, I've been delivering quite a few of them. And some of them we've outsourced to, uh, you know, specialist um, uh, sort of surveyors, effectively uh, experts in, in sort of the habitat classification systems. Um, basically, so people can be more aware of, of when something is important. So, you know, are you about to cut a, an area of grassland which is full of orchids and is potentially quite a valuable habitat um, and it's being done at the wrong time? You know, that's a trigger point, which means oh, maybe we should get an ecologist to come and have a look at this and flag this with the with the landowners that they've got an important area of grassland. Um, whereas previously, maybe that wouldn't have been recognised um, all the way to the sort of contract managers who are um, representing ground control, uh, um, you know, to talk to the clients um, and having those conversations, those initial conversations just about what their ambitions are, um, you know, whether they have an aspiration to, you know, for example, make their sites a more attractive place for people to come and come and work um, to, to sort of lure them back from home working uh, af- after a sort of post-COVID world. Um, all those sorts of conversations uh, are what we're having so far. Yeah, because we've, we've touched a lot on, you know, those fantastic clients that really, really want to make these changes and, and um, become more biodiverse. But there is the other side where potentially clients are a little bit more reluctant and is that the kind of conversations you're having with those clients kind of showing them the other benefits that they can they can achieve yeah and and, and that's really important to 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 understand and and make them make clients realize actually the the social benefits um there's obviously financial benefits and then there's just intrinsic benefits of of you know improving wildlife um so there's there's all sorts of things which can be packaged up um and and the scheme can be modified and tailored towards those needs as well so it's a really important conversation to have and, and really understand the bespoke needs of each client to, to really drive that conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Now, it's been said that we're in a kind of biodiversity crisis. Do you agree? Um, yeah, I mean, it's it, it's it's almost undeniable. Um, there's, there's been studies and studies and reports done um, basically identifying that the UK is a um, you know, one of the most nature depleted areas in the world, which is a, a pretty depress- depressing place to be in, to be honest. Um, and, you know, there's there's all sorts of ecosystem models that have been done, which which indicate that the UK is actually a, a tipping point of environmental collapse. So, you know, this is this is a really critical time um, in history where every single scrap of um, valuable habitat uh, or anything where biodiversity can live uh, or corridors that connect them is absolutely critical to to retain them, to enhance them, um, and also allow them to overspill into the into the wider environment to create new areas. You know, we, we are we are in a real crisis right now, um, and we need to start talking about it more um, and continue to talk about it. Yeah, and obviously, as an industry, we can do our part for sure. Do you think we're a little bit limited by the government as well? Do you think they understand to enough extent how important biodiversity is and how important our industry is as well in preserving biodiversity and, and fighting climate change? Um, I think up until last week, I would have said, yes, I think they do understand. Um, but in light of last week's um, bill, which effectively proposes to um, expire our most uh, our strongest and most important environmental legislation, um, I would have said yes, um, but in light of that, I'm I'm, I'm probably going to have to say that it's it's uncertain right now. Um, the the Environment Act, um, which is is driven biodiversity net gain 
specifically in the development sector and is also driving the uh, uh, what's called the local nature recovery strategies where each individual area will will sort of map out where their existing valuable areas are and where there's opportunities for expand expansion and, and connectivity um, that's a step change in in what we've seen previously um, and and is very welcomed by the sector um, so you know never before have we had a blank canvas of, of you know someone's farm who's looking to to sort of diversify from intensive agriculture into creating a nature reserve and using that to, to offset development, for example. Um, but yeah, in light of the government's uh, announcement last week, um, you know, removing those protections and, and potentially, potentially lessening them um, of our essentially core sites, which are, are our most valuable, they're internationally important, um, is, is worrying to say the least. It just seems so backwards and it can be so frustrating as an industry. Do you have any advice um, for what, you know, businesses, individuals can do, whether they're working on a private garden, commercial sites, anywhere, really? Yeah, I mean, the, the, there is a, a direction of travel and, and, and um, you know, there's a increased need for businesses to be at least caring or quantifying um, and doing the right thing for biodiversity in the environment carbon and, and, and climate is obviously top of the agenda for many organizations at the moment and how to quantify that and minimize their impact and decarbonize their organizations but um yeah biodiversity is sort of the next thing which is coming down the road uh, and there's a lot of proactive organizations which are you know they can do it it potentially doesn't cost them any more money and it makes them look really good so you know why wouldn't you do it um so yeah, there's, there's there's a lot of things going on at the moment, um, including there's a, um, a sort of U, UN task force for nature related financial disclosures, which has uh, been set up. Uh, I believe it was last year it was set up um, and they're they're really pushing this agenda, you know, in the non-development sectors on how they can quantify their risks, their dependencies on nature, um, but also the opportunities that each company has to enhance biodiversity. So that's a, a real change in, in what we've previously seen. And it's a lot more complicated than carbon. Um, but it, it just brings a huge opportunity for people to actually integrate how biodiversity and nature actually underpins our economy and some businesses and makes them realise that. Mm -hmm. And then also just showing people what opportunities they have at potentially no cost to do for the environment. So it's a, it's a great change and, and it's and it's and it's very welcomed, um, and you know I think it's I think it's going to be a very interesting space to be in over the next sort of five years or so. Yeah, that sounds really positive. Because obviously ground control became carbon neutral in twenty twenty, and now you're working towards net zero. For you guys, how does biodiversity play into that goal? Yeah, so I mean we're we're well on target to um to to meet the the net zero uh, by twenty fifty. Um, we're sort of integrating biodiversity into into everything we do, um, and you know our, our carbon ambitions um, are no exception to that. Mm. Uh, a few years ago, we um, we uh, implemented a woodland creation scheme of about nine hectares um, in in Essex, where where Ground Control's headquarters is, called Little Calbridge Wood. Um, the details can be found um, on our website, and uh, effectively that was um, sort of a biodiversity and carbon-led projects to partly reconnect the landscape um, between other parcels of woodland um, but also to, to quantify the, the carbon benefits of which takes some time to mature um, so they won't be able mm. to be counted towards our, 
our carbon targets for another 15 years or so. Um, but it's a step in the right direction and, and it's quantifying the benefits of, of, of two different credit systems effectively. So yeah, showing how they can really work together. Um, do you have any top tips for biodiverse friendly maintenance? If someone's working in a private garden or a commercial site, is there anything they can be doing? Um, I mean, a, a lot of a lot of these sites are hedgerows and grasslands, effectively. You know, whether it's a garden or or a commercial site, um, and I think cutting less often is is always going to be a good thing to do. Um, especially in, you know, you'll have probably heard of no mow May, um, and some people even extend that to no mow June. Yes. Um, so, you know, just in that key period of flowering time, um, if you just don't mow, um, or if you if you if you can't no not mow all of it, just don't mow some of it, as as long as there's some areas which are left long, mm. because in, when we talk about biodiversity, it, it is it's the diversity of species. And you're going to have more diversity of species, the more habitats and structure of habitats you have. So where you get a lot of species is where you have those interfaces between different habitat types. So short grassland is probably not going to support a huge amount, but the interface between short grassland and long grassland will actually probably support quite a lot. Right. And then that interface between long grassland and a hedgerow, for example, or some trees, um, would actually provide another another niche so having that structural diversity um and and potentially not cutting as frequently in the crucial periods during sort of spring summer is probably the best thing that anyone can do great well from biodiverse havens to desert islands <laughs> my final question for you is just a bit of fun what plant would you take to a desert island i think i would take um bird's foot trefoil which is otherwise known as uh, eggs and bacon. Okay. Uh, it's a sort of indicator. It's an indicator species that, that sort of shows you that there that might be some interesting grassland here. Um, it's a fairly diverse species, which can, can sort of cope with lots of different types of soils and, and um, hydrologies. So, and it also flowers, you know, prolifically throughout the year. Um, you know, well, during the sort of spring, summer, autumn period, mm-hmm. uh, the flowers just keep going and they keep coming. Um, so it's a great pollinator. It's a great indicator of something that's interesting. It doesn't grow really big and shaggy. It's, you know, it's fairly, you know, neat. So, yeah, I think I'd take that with me. Sounds brilliant. Um, it sounds like it doesn't um, grow eggs, though, unfortunately. No. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Jack, for joining us. That's been really interesting. I think you've given some real practical advice there and um, you sound quite positive about the future. There's definitely still so much we can do um, to save our biodiverse havens. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think the, the most important thing is is for people to keep talking about it because as long as the public care, which they currently do, the more that the, the politicians will care, care and the legislation will follow. So, you know, there's... I've I've heard in the past people saying that, you know, doing things in your own garden um, isn't going to do anything for nature recovery in the UK um, from sort of well-known Guardian journalists, which, you know, immensely frustrates me mm. because that's that's empowering the people to do their bit. And it, it does make a difference. You know, people can have more diversity of life in their gardens if they if they do the right things and use native species. Um, uh, but the most important thing for me is that it empowers them to have a voice and it and it inspires them to care 
So if the, if there's anything that anyone takes away from this is just carry on caring and carry on talking about it and and hopefully everything will carry on in the in the current direction of travel that it is. A hundred percent. And those small private gardens can come together to create a really great green corridor. So every green space is valuable. Well, a huge thank you again, Jack. I'm Rachel Forsyth, and this has been the Horticulture Week podcast. Make sure you never miss one. Subscribe or follow Horticulture Week podcast via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your preferred podcast platform. If you are interested in producing a podcast with Hort Week, email us at hortweek at haymarket.com. Huge thank you again, Jack, and goodbye for now. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.